Welcome back to another episode of Cyberstar Talks podcast. I am Iona. As always, I am so thrilled you're spending your precious time with me and my honored guest. Today's guest is Curtis Sims. Curtis is the Vice President and Head of Information Security for Bright Health Group based in Minnesota. He is responsible for the information security program that includes governance, risk and compliance, threat and vulnerability management, incident response, security engineering and architecture, cloud identity and access management. As a technologist and security leader, Curtis' priority is to manage risk and prevent cyber exposure and data loss. Protecting intellectual property and health data is something he has been doing for the last 10 years working for top-ranked healthcare organizations in the U.S., Over the last three decades, Curtis has been providing strategic and technical direction for both publicly traded and private organizations, managing multi-million dollar security budgets, leading mergers and acquisitions, and developing cybersecurity practitioners. Curtis has been serving as an ISACA topic leader for over the past two years and holds several security certifications, including CISSP, CISM, CISA, Security Plus, and many others. And he is also a graduate from the FBI Citizens Academy. Curtis is a proud U.S. Air Force veteran who has served in two branches of the military, the Missouri Army and Air National Guard. He has been awarded with a National Defense Service Medal for Operations Desert Storm in the Persian Gulf War. Curtis, thank you so much for accepting my invitation to be a guest in the Cyberstark Talks podcast. Well, I'm delighted to be here, and I am so ecstatic to uh, be a part of your podcast. I'm so thrilled to have you here today, not only because you're a great colleague and friend of mine, but also because your professional journey is really impressive, and I know you have so much to share. Oh, and it's been a pleasure over the years working with you on some of our ISACA articles and and sharing the responsibilities, managing some of the great exam prep forums. So it's a it's a pleasure again to be here and help kind of with your audience share more about my security background and the great things that we're doing in this field. Thank you. I'm really curious to learn about how your experience in the U.S. Air Force has influenced or shaped your career in cybersecurity. Could you share some insights on the ways in which your military background has contributed to your later roles in cybersecurity field? Oh, sure. Absolutely. So I think, you know, for, for myself, you know, I joined the military uh, in my, what I would say, my many years ago in my younger days. But I, But the responsibilities and the you know, the due diligence of learning to be not just as a soldier from the military time, but but as a transition into my career in life. You know, I learned many parts of what it means to be um, a follower. I learned how to be, you know, again, taking responsibilities and getting a, getting the job done, right, from when you start something, making sure you can finish it. But as it progressed into my security career, really what it meant to be tactical and understanding the processes and the life cycle of things. Uh, when you know when you think about managing security programs, uh, working in security programs, and really kind of driving things to protecting a business, you know the military alone allowed me to be really the leader that I am today, the person that I am being responsible, uh, and really, the ethics of what it takes to do the work that we do in information security and cybersecurity, right? I mean, the the importance of protecting data, 
uh, people, process, and just technology as a whole, right. the military was a great stepping stone for me. So it feels like learning about discipline quite a lot, right? Oh, definitely the discipline, right? The discipline that it takes, the effort and the time, right? We can't, unfortunately, security, it's it's 24-7. Um, you just don't know with what type of incident you're dealing with, what what kind of event, um, so yeah, it's it's very similar. It just never, yeah. never ends. Let's talk about one of your favorite topics. How can vulnerability management be integrated into an organization's broader risk management framework? And what emerging trends or technologies are you currently seeing in the vulnerability management space? Yeah, vulnerability management is something that I've been practicing for 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 quite a long time. And significantly, the last, you know, the last seven or eight years, helping to rebuild and reshape vulnerability management in the enterprise to make it definitely part of, you know, the overall risk management framework of an organization. You know, the, the true success factor is, is you have to know what your assets are. And I found in the last two large healthcare organizations that I worked for, you know, the the vulnerability program wasn't a complete program, right? I mean, you only know you're as strong as your weakest link and you really need to make sure you can scan and find and understand all of the vulnerabilities that can be within an asset, um, within processes, within applications. And until you can do that, you're really not effectively driving an organizational level of risk. Absolutely. And so one thing that I found um Having the right tools is definitely a plus. I think programs are starting to be more emerging um, where you're finding AI and automation really driving the foundations of vulnerability programs. So so for me, I found that as really dri the driving factor today um, on how we can start improving and improvising further on our detection process. And the key driver, the key driver is putting the accountability back on the asset and owners to really understand their responsibilities on managing vulnerabilities. And again, that can be really in a process or an asset. And I think that's the driving factor. And it's also very important to mention that we need to ensure that all stakeholders within organization, including IT, security, and business leaders are aligned and engaged into this vulnerability management process. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Um, talking about vulnerabilities, uh, nowadays we are using tons of smart devices that are interconnected via Bluetooth. How secure is Bluetooth? Could you please provide us with some more insights into the different security layers in Bluetooth security architecture and some tips on how can we increase its security? Yeah, Bluetooth is definitely still an attack vector. You know, I, I find Bluetooth, you know, when you're looking at embedded operating systems on various things, the technology itself has come a long way, right? When you think about smart devices, you know, you can pick um, pick an Android or an Apple Watch, you know, look at some of the fitness devices that exist that are growing out there. You know, those are the, the health market, you know, can be a highly targeted environment. And I think a lot of people forget things that still exist like blue bugging, blue jacking, blue snarfing, right. you know, I think those are very popular vulnerabilities that, you know, you don't have to be, 
most people may not know this, but with Bluetooth, it typically, you know, it's about a 10 meter type of uh, radius for using Bluetooth technology. So really anything under that 30 foot perimeter, but some of the vulnerabilities today exist, you know, where Bluetooth being a shortwave radio type of signal can still be vulnerable and attacked from about 100 meters. So a lot of people don't realize, you know, utilizing a laptop and anywhere from, you know, that 300 foot radius or within, you're, you can still be very vulnerable to Bluetooth. So uh, ways to mitigate the risks is keeping your Bluetooth turned off if you're not using it. Um, exactly. You know, understanding you don't have to be an expert in some of these vulnerabilities, but some of the the safeguarding that you can do is keeping your devices secure. Um, I'm probably one of those people that when an update comes out, sometimes I don't necessarily jump on waiting, right? Like some people like to be like maybe one version behind, you know, they, they don't want to huh. risk a, a new patch breaking their their device or what you would call like bricking it almost. Uh, so like I'm an advocate, I like to I like to push updates pretty quickly to my um, device where Bluetooth does actively work and, you know, keeping it keeping it secure and just knowing what your your settings are around Bluetooth can really help prevent these type of attacks. And thanks to Bluetooth 5 and the developing network structures, it is now even possible to attack from a distance of 1,500 meters with a high gain antennas. And that's insane, right? Oh, the attackers are, it's just, it's just scary, right? How devoted attackers are. Uh, Bluetooth is still, a, again, a great attack vector. Um, even with the architecture continuing to push and get better with Bluetooth, um, all of the things like most people don't realize when they share their, their Bluetooth hotspot, right? That's another great way you can be in a public place or a cafe and you just don't realize the risk you're putting yourself in. Yeah. And especially when it comes to car whispering, which targets car radios with Bluetooth capabilities. So hackers use this attack to eavesdrop on conversations and phone calls that takes place inside the car. So in, in other cases, the hackers may use the interconnection to also inject audio in the car and oftentimes with, with malicious intent, of course. So yeah, we are surrounded with so many attack vectors when it comes to using Bluetooth technologies that we can even not imagine how far it can get, right? Yeah, and all of the new devices that are continuing to be built, like you said, within within automobiles, healthcare devices, home security, and and you have to keep in mind like people now are getting washer, dryers, refrigerators, stoves, all of these things can be driven by Bluetooth and wireless that are going to continue to be a problem. And how about the security levels of Bluetooth? How can users protect themselves? Some of the best things that I would recommend is, again, you need to know your device, right? Users need to understand the capabilities of what that device Bluetooth uh, allows and really know the settings. Taking time to go through your settings, understand how to update your Bluetooth firmware or or uh, settings and configurations that you have control over. I think that would be a primary um, initiative that users just need to be familiar with what the devices can do. And that's that's a challenge. I think a lot of users just today struggle with, you know, technology may not be their forte. It may not be something that they have a background in. 
uh, let alone understanding all of the security settings that come with Bluetooth. Um, but, you know, best practices are, again, keeping your knowing how to update your system, you know, having it have a routine. Um, and then if you don't, you know, look at look at pulling in somebody that can provide the assistance, whether that's through a service company, family member. You know, there's a lot of people that can provide help and assistance helping somebody understanding their Bluetooth technology and how to keep it secure. Android, for example, so many settings that you can control um, more than you would find on like an Apple device, for example. The security of medical devices is a topic I always love to bring up. And you and I have been talking a lot about it and also wrote an article together on this topic. What is, in your view, uh, the biggest cybersecurity challenge facing the, the medical industry today? Yeah, I would just say firsthand. So working for, again, here in St. Louis, um, one of the top rated in the country healthcare organizations. I worked for one also based out of Boston, um, a top five healthcare organization in the U.S. And I've seen firsthand the challenges that we face protecting medical devices. You know, the medical vendors historically have been really highly targeted, right? We know we know medical information is always a top target um, for uh, the dark web, the black market, things oh. like that, selling, selling data. And keeping devices properly segmented on networks has been something that I think most medical manufacturers themselves have done a They've done a pretty good job overall, but the problem is, is, is medical devices still really struggle being able to update medical devices in a timely manner. So that's that's one reason attackers continue to look at medical companies, healthcare companies, knowing medical devices still really kind of fall behind um, on what we would consider as in today's standards timely patch management. So, right. you know, for me, you know, getting getting the manufacturers that exist out there today, and these are the top manufacturers in the world, getting them to agree to agreements where they're patching their times in X amount of time, right? Meeting company policies, um, looking at the different ways you can attack, like we just talked about, Bluetooth, wireless, uh, they're not all medical devices today are not all wired to the network. They're they're using wireless technology in hospitals all the time in order to provide patient care. So, you know, I just think you, you're going to find and it's continuing to be a problem overall struggling with keeping up on patching those devices and making sure that they're uh, on the right uh, security trust boundaries, right, that they're they're not they're not open to the wireless networks the right they're not joining networks that public members can connect and unfortunately try to do nefarious things to right we have to make sure that they're properly being segmented i think that's one of the biggest challenges today you mean by isolating them in the separate vlans likely right correct absolutely right making sure that they're not part of your you know most companies and large healthcare organizations with hospitals you want to have a medical device segmented LAN um, that's only meant for your medical technology. And that really will prevent them from being targeted from a local area network, a server network, your guest network, um, your public facing network, and all those different types of zones that exist. Absolutely. Curtis, how do you see the security leadership role evolving? Do you think cybersecurity is now a board level leadership imperative? 
You know, I see a lot of a lot of trends changing where we're going. You know, when you look at here in the U.S., when you look at the SEC, for example, they're they're looking at putting new laws together that really is bringing cybersecurity roles and responsibilities at the board level. Um, I think organizations have done a tremendous job putting chief security officers and CISOs in place really to be responsible for building an effective cybersecurity program. Um, making sure that you're doing all the right things from a governance risk and compliance, from a security operations and architecture um, focus. But I do think that, you know, there's there's always room for improvement, right? There's always going to be challenges with businesses balancing uh, your cybersecurity program with being profitable. Um, it's It's getting better. It's come a long way. And I think as long as organizations continue to allocate funding for cybersecurity programs, resources for it. Um, I think that's a great start, right? Uh, it's it's going to be something that at the board level, boards will need to continue to be heavily engaged, ensuring that you're doing those things, meeting laws, regulations, and all of the requirements that we have. And definitely cybersecurity leaders need to be up to speed on uh, information security issues from a technical standpoint, understand how to implement security planning into the broader um, business objectives, and also be able to build a stronger, lasting security and risk-based culture. But however, security in some cases is not on the top of mind of the C-suites. We see a lot of companies that take the necessary measures only when a series of security incidents uh, affect the organization, which is really sad. Yeah, as you said, we are we are on the good tracks in, in some directions. Uh, it's going to continue like this, hopefully. Yeah, absolutely. And having the right cybersecurity practitioners on your team, right, the right experienced and trained um, staff is definitely a plus. And I think building good partnerships, right? Continuing to build good partnerships with the your executive and senior leaders, um, making sure you understand how you can be that uh, partner and advocate, protecting your most critical parts of the business, right? Your crown jewels, your mission critical systems, and things like that. I think if we continue to focus on Showing the business leaders why we do what we do, keeping them safe, uh, will always continue to provide value and help promote the maturity of uh, security programs. How can cybersecurity leaders reframe their roles to succeed in this rapidly changing cybersecurity industry? What can we do better? Well, that yeah, that's a that's a great a great way to. I like how you how you stated that. Um, we're always looking for gaps, right? And I think finding ways to improve programs means re-evaluating re how we do things today, whether that's automation, finding ways to utilize AI, and just fixing bad processes, fixing, fixing flaws in an organization that could put the brand or the company at risk. So I think by, you know, showing ways to just having the security trending background so you can tell the story and explain why we're making changes, I think is a great way to refrain and just continuing to make change and improve. You know, there's Absolutely. a constant shift. Attackers are shifting and so should we. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a valid point. 
actually sometimes the lack of resources and the disconnection with management and you know constant firefighting are leading to mental health issues and also burnouts among security leaders which is really sad and i think the main reason for the disconnect between cisos and senior executives is that while the c level may be willing to make significant investments in cybersecurity they expect to receive a clear sense of perspective, right? Uh, a credible plan for execution and some level of assurance of protection instead of being bombarded with technical jargon and request to purchase new technology every time a security incident occurs. So I, I also right. think that this mindset to, to use some business terms instead to come closer to the business language is very, very crucial. And because cybersecurity is not just a technology problem, you know, it, it actually never was. That's true. Great points. What are some effective approaches for monitoring and measuring cyber exposure? And how can organizations use this information to improve their cybersecurity posture? Yeah, I mean, so when you think about cyber exposure, you, you definitely have to know your asset inventory. I think if you don't, if you don't really understand your assets, who uses them, where they are, um, you know, the, the right. accounts using them and making sure you can properly log those assets and what's happening, you know, that's going to, to be a challenge for any organization. But when you're monitoring cyber exposure, you know, things that you can do as a good practice is, is make sure you've got a good scanning program in place. One of the things that I found to be successful is know your public facing devices, scan and evaluate those often. Um, the organizations that I've worked for, we've implemented where we're scanning public-facing stuff more than one time a week. So most most may say, "Well, wow, that's a lot, a lot to be scanning." Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, you, you know your websites and applications. But if you build the right scanning policies and you, you know, you look at doing authenticated scans where possible, but also doing unauthenticated scans, like what an attacker can see on your company you're really gonna have the right understanding um, in order to not just monitor cyber exposure, but to properly measure it with those risks back to your leaders. Yeah. So knowing knowing assets, that's a, that's a priority. Um, we kind of talked about this a little bit, but know your, know your zones or your trust boundaries. That'll be a big, a big factor. And understand your data, like data flows. So anything that could be uh, potentially putting you at risk from an attacker, an organization and your security teams definitely need to really understand what's going in and what's going out. Absolutely. So, Inbound and outbound yeah. traffic is really important. Oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely a, a, a must know. And then I think, again, just like go back to your, your assessments. It doesn't have to be just internal assessments. Think about what you do monthly, quarterly, or annually with your third-party firms for security assessments. Um, you know, I think that's a great way to make sure security teams aren't missing something and then you that you really understand, you know, what, what you're putting at risk um, from really that cyber exposure, I think, that people make changes all the time on networks, right? A firewall port could be opened up inadvertently. Um, a server could be reverted or rolled back to a previous patch that was already in place. So configurations change frequently and you must have a good way to monitor and know exactly what your cyber exposure um, could be at any time. 
what role does uh, cyber insurance play in addressing cyber exposure risk? And how can organizations choose the right cyber insurance policy? Yeah, so I would, you know, obviously follow, make sure you're partnered with your legal, your legal counsel and your team effectively on any cyber insurance liability. Um, and I think that's going to come down to really when you look at the value of your assets, right? The value of the business, if it would be compromised by an attacker, um, it's important to make sure you've got the right coverage in place. And and what that really means is if you're going to bring in a forensics firm or a third-party firm, you and you may not even also have your own security team, you might outsource that to a, to a third party. Um, having, having the right programs, the incident response plans, um, the cyber liability insurance coverage, all is going to play a factor when you're responding to a potential ransomware attack. Um, you know, some type of malware that's going to lead to ransomware compromising your assets. I mean, the last thing any company wants, and we see it all the time in the news today, is to be crippled um, and not having access to your systems and letting yeah. the attacker control that, you know, through a ransomware payment. So that's where the liability will come into play. Having an effective cyber insurance product will allow you to utilize, you know, that third-party firm, uh, help pay for a forensics team, help pay for recovery, um, and even in some cases, you know, help pay for purchase of new equipment and just rebuilding your environment. Wow. You know, li the liability insurance is so valuable today, uh, depending on the size of your company and the value. Um, that can be something most companies definitely need to start looking at more and more. I would say one thing to call out, it's funny, you know, cyber warfare is starting to be excluded from a lot of cyber insurance programs. So really making sure you understand in the time of need what's covered and what's not covered is going to play a big role in you selecting the right um, company for your liability insurance. Excellent advice. Let's talk about incident response process. What are some common mistakes that organizations make when responding to cyber attacks and how can these be avoided? Well, not being prepared, I would say first off, right? You want to, teams need to be well prepared, um, again, through your own security operations, your own SOC, or even a managed security service provider. One thing that I found to be effective is making sure you have a working incident response plan. And one way to ensure that you do have that in place is implementing tabletop exercises. Right. So, you know, again, coming from an environment with, with helping to manage large hospital environments, um, making sure that we're prepared and we're partnered with uh, the right business contacts when something should happen, right? Know your Know your contacts within your incident response plan. Who would you call for what when something impacts, you know, a public facing website potentially, or uh, there might be some uh, network bandwidth, right? That's all becoming alarming. Um, and you're going to follow your plans and you're going to follow making sure you've got the right contacts to execute those plans. Um, and, and one of the top things you really want to consider is, Knowing the kill switch, knowing how the network contains something, uh, you don't want to waste time when you're responding to a cyber attack, trying to find the right contact, trying to right find the what the problem is. Yeah. Make sure you know how to contain something quickly 
just so you can limit the risk and the exposure. And then you can start to kind of understand what's going on once something has been contained. And then I would I would also add like, you know, having strong communication plans, you wanna be able to effectively let your leadership team know what's happening uh, in a timely um, manner. And you you also wanna make sure your, your, your cyber resiliency plans, when you look at business continuity and DR, those plans, along with your incident response plan have to be ready to to be utilized. So yeah, there's a lot of a lot of things you've got to do with contacting the right leaders involving legal, involving privacy, your compliance team. Um, and I think going back to your your cyber liability and having in some cases a, a retainer on file uh, to be able to respond to that cyber attack, right? You might need a top-rated cybersecurity firm to be able to come in that does just that. They're a firm that's ready to respond and help you in the event of a cyber attack. All right. And as you mentioned, the communication is really very crucial here because oh, yeah. communication breakdowns between the technical team, management, and other stakeholders can absolutely lead to ineffective response efforts. And it's crucial to establish clear communication channels and protocols among all parties uh, involved in the incident response process. But that shouldn't be defined at the time of incident, <laughs> but rather exactly, exactly. Around, yeah, absolutely. And have a and have a good partnership ready to go with your. So for me here in the United States, um, you know, have a good partnership with your local law enforcement. You know, that would include um, you know the FBI, uh, DHS, um, CISA. And we, you know, things like that, you know, those are great things you can do and they all have programs now. So for me in healthcare, I'm always considering myself being part of the critical infrastructure. And so having those relationships also is a huge plus monitoring and responding to cyber attacks. But sometimes companies do also fail in the post-incident analysis. So they, they completely skip it sometimes because they think it might not be that important. But failure to conduct a post-incident analysis can result in a missed opportunity to identify vulnerabilities oh, yeah. in the organization. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, your lessons learned, right? I mean, like from you take whatever the attack was, right. what happened? Did you, did you do a, a proper job understanding the root cause analysis of why that happened? But like you said, follow through. If your regulatory, if you have regulatory compliance needs, you're going to need to document and make sure you can show how you're going to mitigate this from happening uh, again. again. So yeah, great point. Last month, the news of a new Trojan named GoTrad made headlines everywhere. So it targeted banks in Brazil to make fraudulent money transfers using uh, PX keys on user mobile devices. The deployment of the mobile banking Trojans has increased by 100% compared to the previous year. What cybersecurity measures can mobile users adopt to defend against these types of attacks? Well, I would say, you know, when you're looking at these type of, you know, these are these are remote access capabilities really trying to break in. And, and like you said, this was the goat rat was specifically targeting initially targeting banks and Brazil's, you know, really, really to try to trick users uh, in providing the keys that give them access to their banking information. Right. You know, one thing that users need to continue to be aware of. And that's these various types of phishing attacks. A lot of phishing attacks lead to these um, remote Trojan type of attack vectors. 
And in this case with Goat Rat, you know, that was specifically a way to trick a user by making an overlay on their banking application where they thought they were banking, for example, within their Brazilian banks, um, you know, to do money transfers and mobile banking. The reality is, is they were communicating through a fake overlay, giving the attacker the funds versus, you know, their actual banking system. What I would say is for a lot of people, and, and, and I think this was more heavily, heavily targeted on the Android side, right? So when you're looking at Android devices, I think, you know, first and foremost, and again, coming from, from my side, I would just say I'm an Apple user. But I think on the Android side, you know, you know, you need to make sure you're turning on Google Play Protect. Uh, that's a big way to really prevent um, these type of attacks. Making sure you're utilizing um, the right applications from the Google Play Store. Oh, that's really uh, also really... yeah, and also you know, there's there's Android device settings that you need to make sure you've got turned on, keeping your device updated. You're running the latest uh, Android version. And, and you're not sharing your banking information. Make sure you've got all of your banking. You should have strong passwords and you turned on two-factor and multi-factor. Right. All banking, all banks should allow this now for users. And I think that's going to be something you really can utilize to be your primary ways to prevent these types of attacks from occurring. But users need to remember, like, go to your Google Play Store yourself to download things. Don't follow an email uh or leading you to yeah or links or, media email right yeah leading to you like oh there's a new version let me take this let me click this through my email no make it make it a habit to go directly to the google play store for example from your from your mobile device and make sure you're utilizing that to, to or your banking app right that you downloaded from the play store but there's so many things you just you really need to be leery and avoid links coming over from SMS, text or emails that have anything to do with banking. And I always tell folks also make sure like, did you request that? Does this right. seem logical? Like, why would you be getting this? You should always start to, you know, make it a make it a, a human learning effort that. This isn't normal. I didn't request this, so don't click on this, right? Those are those are really the number one ways to avoid it. Is just that it's that human element that we're continuing to practice and teach, um, not to follow all of these emails and things to click on, because the attacker does know this. They know people work through email sometimes too quick, and they're hoping you're going to make a mistake clicking on that link um, just because of. One, you missed it, or you just didn't catch that it wasn't from your bank. But the reality is, is to get away from email and links in general when it comes to like managing finance stuff. It's it's really important to be able to identify those red flags. And it's hard. It's hard. And I get it for the user, right? That's a hard thing. But just we got to continue to teach them on the human side of it. Absolutely. Awesome. Curtis, thank you so much for being here today. I really appreciate your time and thanks for the insightful conversation. Oh, thank you for inviting me. I, I enjoyed it and I look forward to the next time. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Cyberstar Talks podcast. If you like what you heard, please follow us, leave a review and tune in monthly for the upcoming episodes.